The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leaf, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week, my guests are the arts publicist Anne Mayer Bird and writer, campaigner and co-founder of the Women's Equality Party, Catherine Mayer. They're mother and daughter, but they're also, in the phrase they use, twin widows. About a year ago, both of their husbands died within about five weeks of each other. And they've written together a new book called Good Grief, Embracing Life at a Time of Death. This is a book that sort of starts in a room. And I just wanted to talk about how it comes out of that room. This, well, if you look behind me, you can see the room. Goodness. Well, the, li- the listeners can't, but I can. It's a big no. spacious room with yes. a sofa on it. So I actually originally suggested calling the book The Living Room because of the deaths in rapid succession of our husbands and then lockdown. So we were freshly widowed and then thrust into lockdown. The only person that either of us saw during that first lockdown was the other, albeit wearing masks and protective clothing, because I would come once a week to make sure that my mother was all right, that she had food. As you will gather from this conversation, my mother is not somebody who fits a lot of preconceptions about caregiving. She's deeply independent, but she had never lived alone ever before my stepfather died. And we would mostly do practical things while I was there. But at the end of every visit, we would sit in this very big room that they have, which is a kind of light industrial unit that was added onto their house later on and where we can sit at enormous distance and we'd sit there at enormous distance to each other and sort of try and talk through what was happening to us in terms of widowhood, a lot of it not talking about emotions but talking practicalities because of course widowhood at any time, bereavement at any time comes with this amazing burden of what we call sad men but at the time of lockdown and with everything else going on there were all sorts of additional complications but it was literally the only human contact of that whole period so it was quite profound and we still meet in that room once a week and it's the living room so it's where we're where we're kind of learning to live again so it has a big significance for us. The other thing that happened, Sam, was that in March, during the very first lockdown, and as Catherine said, isolated, totally isolated for the first time in my life, and I'm 87, so I'm not very young, I started writing letters to John. And it didn't seem at all absurd to me to do that. There were just so many things. I mean, he died in December. Three months later, he wouldn't have recognized the country he left. So much had happened, not just Andy's death, but the whole pandemic. And so I just started writing to him, initially not intending for anybody to see those letters, but I did eventually send Catherine the first two or three. And Catherine, you can take over from there. (laughs) Well, the book kind of 
it it wasn't something that I had planned to write. I mean, first of all, my widowhood was more of a shock than my mother's. My my stepfather had been ill for several years. So although he died much more suddenly than we expected, he nevertheless, we knew that he had incurable conditions. My husband, his death was, was extremely sudden. So certainly, really, the last thing, even though I'm a writer, the last thing I, I thought about doing was writing about it. And in fact, the only reason I started to write again after his death, which was at the beginning of February, was because he was a public figure. He was um, the founder and, and guitarist of a music group called Gang of Four. God, I sound like a high court judge. A music group called <laughs> Gang of Four. A um, popular beat combo. Um, yes, exactly. A popular beat combo. And his death prompted a kind of worldwide interest and and sorrow among his fans and i i think for most people death can be something where there's a problem about how you let people know that somebody's died how you how you inform the wider friendship groups and you know my mother for example is still getting christmas has still got christmas cards from people who didn't realize that my stepfather had died i had the opposite problem, which was that I had suddenly many hundreds of thousands of people I didn't know, all very interested in Andy's death, all reaching out to me. And there was also then it became further complicated as speculation arose that he may have been one of the first victims of COVID in this country. And so there was also there were two different sorts of press interest. So I began to blog, not because I actually felt moved to write, but because I wanted to answer everybody at once and preserve my privacy. So it's a bit counterintuitive. I was I was putting information out there to keep people at bay. Yes, you have a hair-raising thing that a fan phoned you up like the day after he died. Yes, I had I had quite a lot of odd things. I mean that was that was very heartfelt, but the fan was crying. And I, I don't, my memories of that period are very fractured still. I, I developed a kind of amnesia as part of the trauma of the experience of Andy dying. But I dealt with some very odd things where people, I think there's a disconnection a lot of people have with public figures where they don't really understand them as normal human beings with a normal universe of close family and friends and and therefore they they sort of don't assume that the people associated with those people will need privacy in the same way as as other people so i i had a quite a lot of intrusive things happen i also had you know numerous attempts at fraud and break-ins just after he died as well because of the publicity so i was dealing with so a lot. I had that too i think that yeah. widowhood well it it does but there was there was the specific thing of people trying to merchandise based on Andy's. You know, they were they were literally bringing out and Andy merchandise and all sorts of stuff. So I began to blog, and my publisher saw it, and she came to me and said that you should write a book. And I said, no, it's it's too soon. But look at these amazing letters my mother's writing because my mother had shared some of her letters to John, and they were they were and are extraordinary both as 
I think they, they read beautifully, but I also think they're a really interesting document in terms of going through that whole extraordinary year, chronicling the grief, etc. I'm still writing them. I also see them as a diary as well as, you know. So I wasn't sure that I wanted to write, but I wanted the letters to come out. And so I agreed to write the book in order to give a platform to the letters. And then when I started to write, I realised I had a huge amount to say. So that's that's really how it came about. And for yes. you, as somebody who isn't by nature or by history a sort of public-facing writer, did you feel anxious or unsure about this question of making something as private as your grief? Not, your at, all. Not at all. I think John would have applauded it. I've never felt any qualms about it. And although you say I'm not a public figure, I'm fairly well known in the arts publicity world. I've been around a long, long time. And I also wrote two years ago, self-published by my children, the beginning of my memoirs. So I'm, I'm not totally inexperienced as a writer. I mean, I do write, I have written probably, I would hate to count the number of press releases I've written. Of course, publishers have to be able to write. <laughs> I'm sure it's well over a thousand, but I have written other things and have always wanted to be a writer, oddly enough. Bit late getting round to it, but I've, that's what I've always wanted to be. It's never too late to start. I think Mary Wesley was in a, was in a Indeed. Was in Indeed. Before she started writing. Indeed. And can you tell me a little about John? Because Andy, oh, obviously, Andy, is a public yes. figure, Andy less so. Well, John was one of those people that, on first meeting, looked so British and ordinary. That's the other thing. My first husband, Catherine's dad, is American comes from a totally similar background. We both come from the suburbs of Chicago, grew up in a very similar way. He went to Yale, I went to Smith. You never had to turn to David and say, what do you think about this? Because I already knew, if you know what I mean. John came from a totally different world. He was a working class guy, self-made, got a place at Cambridge, which he couldn't take up because he couldn't pay for it. and. The thing that is amazing is not just that when he came into my family, and don't forget, this is very much a second marriage. We had both been married 21 or two years, had kids, had families, apparently very little in common. He was working in financial services. I was working in the arts. But as the un what I call his onion layers peeled away, not only did it reveal this extreme extraordinary, artistic, talented, multifaceted, very bright man. But also he adored my family and they adored him. I think he and Andy had that in common, that the Mayer family is, is quite an acquired taste for some people, but they both love the Mayer family. We're a very close family, very loud, very vociferous, very talkative, very closely united even now. And both those men in their different ways loved being part of the family. And, and we all loved each other. I mean, one of my greatest memories is just before John died, we took Catherine and Andy. And coincidentally, John has a daughter also called Catherine. And Catherine Mayer and Catherine Byrne have both been married for 20 years in 2019. And John and I took all four of them out to dinner. 
And it was one of the most lovely evenings. I think you'd agree, Catherine. It was just a very, very special evening. And I think it just indicated that over the, John and I were together 43 years, that the two families who were so improbably different at the beginning had just knitted themselves together. And I think John was just, and everybody adored him. It's extremely hard to find someone. And also he left financial services, retrained as a fine art painter, went to the Slade, went to the Open College of Art and became an artist. I mean, the sense of how closely the families were knit. So there's a lovely detail, I think, in one of your sections, Catherine, where you say that, I think it was you, Anne, or maybe it was John, sent an invitation to Andy Gill plus one. Yeah, that was my that was my mother. <laughs> That's not just a case of how closely knit our families were, but Andy and John had a lot in common. And one of the things is that they were incredibly easy to love. And Andy was adored by everybody in the family, but I, I kind of very quickly got my sense of my rejigged place in the pecking order. <laughs> I've been teasing her about that for years, but that's genuinely, and it came in her handwriting as well. So it's, it's, it can't be blamed on anyone else. And just to conclude, Sam, when John yeah. lay dying at University College Hospital and the whole extended family was crowded into the room, which would certainly never happen today, but all four, because John had two daughters, one of whom died in 2016 of ovarian cancer. And she and Catherine were very close. Catherine had talked about her. But so there were the four remaining daughters sitting there. And the consultant came in and he knew that John had one natural daughter. So he walked into the room and he said, which of you is John's daughter? And simultaneously, they all four stood up and said, we are all his daughters, which I found extraordinarily moving, particularly thinking back to it, because it was so instinctive. They just stood up in unison and said, we're all his daughters. And I think that that's the best thing I can say about John. He brought people together. I mean, one of the things the book does very movingly is to, you know, explain who these people were. Like, you know, I know that now immemorially that Andy Gill, you know, stole hotel soap obsessively and hated the <laughs> colour purple and the back end of dogs, you know. <laughs> There's something that you put in, I, I suspect it's particularly affects you know, somebody's a public figure and is obituarized in all the newspapers and so forth. But there's a sense that your private conception of your lost loved one is somehow kind of overwritten or problematized by the public description. You talk about that, you know, other people's obituaries, other people's memories, they write to you. Is that something that enriches your sense of them? Or is it? Is there a sort of sense in which it puts it under threat or there's an anxiety associated with it? I think there is an anxiety associated with it, but it's also something that public figures go through during their lifetime as well, that they constantly see themselves written up and described and misdescribed. And obviously, you aren't always the best judge of who you are either. So I'm not saying that, that you are the ultimate authority on yourself. But one of the things that I missed a lot in the writing process was, you know, I, I could talk to my mother, but there would have been this whole dialogue with Andy about who he was. There would have been a dialogue with John about who he was. And there would have been conflicting memories and interpretations and all of that. So when you have, with a public figure, when you have that sort of wave of response to a death as there was, 
you're having people really thrusting at you their cut and dried an obituary is a final word on this is who somebody was and there was a lot of it that was quite sloppy it would have factual errors in it but it wasn't really that it was about kind of buying into one particular image of him as this guitar hero with the scowling face and the you know somebody who was deeply serious and he was all of those things but he was also very you know funny sometimes silly sometimes absurdist you know he had these obsessions and it also then tied into something else that happens when somebody dies which is that instinct to polish and sanitize and that was something which I was very conscious of when we were writing that I didn't want either of us to fall into the trap of I felt it was very important that John came through in the book and that my mother and John's love story came through in the book as well as Andy and mine, but not in some kind of sanitised version. If you're going to celebrate life, and that was one of the things that we felt impelled to do, then you have to celebrate life with its quirks and its messy bits and its, you know, that these were not perfect people. They were the men that we loved and still love. But that kind of inhuman perfection is something that gets imposed on people after death. And one of the fascinating things to me in your letters is you say that after 43 years of marriage, you found, by going through his drawers, more <laughs> about John. Absolutely. I have found that all together in the, in the year and a couple of weeks since elapsed. Is, I mean, and they're not terrible things. It's not like discovering a file in which he talks about a family that I knew nothing of. And it's nothing like that. It's, it's for instance, one day his filing cabinet collapsed. Not surprising, as I don't think he'd ever removed anything from it in years and years. Not the frame, but the drawers all just fell into each other and spilled all over the floor. I rang Catherine up in tears and she very kindly said she would come over and because she was the only person allowed in the house. And we found among many other things rolling around on the floor, a very large collection of probably quite valuable Victorian coins in a, in a very flimsy paper envelope. I knew him all those years. The word coins was never mentioned because he also collected stamps. You just name it. He, he was interested in so many things. And as I've said many times, he never had one of anything. If he liked something, then he had multiples and multiples. But the coins, I'm probably still finding them. Some of them were tiny. So I don't mean I found things that were shocking and horrible. I just found whole facets that I knew nothing about. You did find out how extravagant he was, which, yes. I mean, you, you kind of knew he was extravagant, but some of it was very funny, actually. I mean, I'm still sorting out probate after all this time and selling off for instance he had something upwards of 800 bottles of fine wine in our garage wow, wow indeed my neighbor oh. across the road who's my bubble is helping me sell them and i've already made a few thousand pounds on the wine because it will all go off sooner or later but i mean over 800 bottles of wine in a domestic house and we entertained a lot but we didn't entertain that much <sighs> I mean, you know, he was, he was very profligate, I suppose is the word. And I'm very cautious and mean and careful and never have anything I don't need and would never buy something I didn't need. And he loved all that. 
loved it. We have paintings. You can't believe the paintings we've got. I've just rang the insurance company before I came on, literally, because he had a Patek Philippe watch, and he's given it to his grandson. So I've had to warn John's daughter to get it insured. It's going to cost me £2,000 less next year to insure mine his possession because I don't have the watch anymore. But he did, he was very lavish for a man of, let's say, modest means. Because when he, when he stopped working for financial services, he really earned little or nothing for the rest of his life. And yet he surrounded himself. And yet he was such a nice person. He just saw, I, I cannot find one ounce of resentment in me for anything he did. And that's, that's quite special after so many years. Now, I mean, that thing of being on the phone to insurance companies, you know, I think uh, some people who pick up a book about grief would expect a great number of, you know, platitudinous discussions of emotions. And, you know, actually, one of the things that comes through is that what you call sad men yes. is like a huge part of the process. It is enormous and it never stops. The thing about sad men is we wrote about it because it is so much part of the kind of universe of being bereaved that you have to at the moment where you feel least competent to deal with anything you have to deal with the most and you have to deal with all this sort of administrative stuff which can be it's very burdensome but it can be quite frightening as well but one of the reasons we wanted to talk about that as well is that it ties into this kind of way in which we don't discuss the end of life in our cultures at all we tend to to try and ignore it and push it away as a result of that there's so many things that we make harder for ourselves you know the thing that we can't avoid is death the thing that we can avoid is each death not only being the loss that it will represent emotionally but being complicated then by by all of these a lot of them are small and stupid things of not knowing how things work in a, in a, you know, you share a house with somebody for, you know, my mother and John were, were about to, would have celebrated their 40th wedding anniversary this year. Andy and I were nearly 30 years together and somehow you fall into habits where only one of you knows where something is or how to you know, there'll be some tricky bit of old kit in the house, like a dodgy boiler or something that only one of you knows how to get started again. And it's also then, I don't know, there's just so many things like that, that if you more commonly talked about the possibility, the absolute definite probability that at some point you're not both going to be there, you might deal with it better. I don't know. I mean, I suspect there's a lot of it you'd still let slip. But definitely this is an added burden. And then under lockdown, we had the thing, of course, where most of the institutions we were dealing with were themselves reeling. Staff had been furloughed. And these endless conversations with online bots, you know, who I write about a bit about some of that in the book, where I'm still getting a lot of letters addressed to things like, Dear Mr. Estate of Andy Gill. <laughs> And I'd be dealing with institutions online that continually call me Andrew. And, and I kind of go, he's dead. And they go, that doesn't sound very good. Well, Andrew. <laughs> like, 
Oh my God. <laughs> the other thing, Sam, that feeds into that is the difference between having a will, which is a legal document, which fewer than half the adults in this country have a will, and what I call end of life planning. And through great good fortune, I introduced John to a friend of mine who didn't even know her when I met, when I introduced them, who persuaded him to fill in an end of life document, which he did in handwriting when I found it, but it was the only clue I had because I had no idea. Now, it's not just about things like direct debits and things. It was, I didn't know what kind of funeral he wanted. I didn't know where he wanted to be buried. I didn't know who I should, you know, and he filled that in. And it was absolutely a godsend. And I think the more you do to prepare people, even if you're not very old, it doesn't hurt to think, well, if something happened to me, because in the age of COVID, I don't think age is the great determiner anymore. No. You know, and I think that people of any age could suddenly find they were on the way out. And I think to leave for their families, not just a legal document called a will, but a list of things you would like to happen or you'd like them to do. It really is, is so vital. Although that does highlight how lucky both of us were, you know, because I actually, with my stepsister, also called Catherine, organised John's funeral and then, of course, organised Andy's funeral and organised Andy's memorial, which was the last thing. Really, the memorial was right before lockdown. And I now I now look back on it, sort of 400 people in a space. And you think, my God, that <laughs> it probably was a vector of infection, but it was a wonderful ceremony. And I feel so sorry for all of the COVID bereaved now who are not able to do that and not just the COVID bereaved I mean anybody who has who loses somebody now funerals are so scaled back it, you have to find other ways to memorialize people and again this was for me a spur to writing the book and to telling the stories of Andy and John and and you know the the kind of our love stories if you like is because it's again how are people going to memorialize the dead now and with these death tolls as high as they are how are people going to insist on the humanity of each individual in that aggregate toll and I think it's by telling stories this is all that's left to us is to tell the stories of the people who died and tell of the love that that we had and still have for them. You talk about yourselves that in that very resonant phrase that you both use as twin widows I mean in what way is the experience of this changed your relationship well we always had a good relationship i just think it's incredibly deepened it i think it's that feeling that when you've been bereaved and people come up and say how are you and it's a question you can't really answer to have one other person who knows how you are who you don't have to say how are you because you absolutely know i think it's it's been invaluable i wouldn't have wished andy dead for anything in the world but having it happen accidentally did give us this bond. Beyond the bond, we were already close. I must, it, is, it isn't like we suddenly met each other. <laughs> <laughs> we're a very close family, as I've said, but we've got this extra space that we occupy, which is now just so instinctive. Did your experiences of grief differ between the two of you? I know there's a sort of idea 
you know, popularised by the sort of Kubler-Ross idea that everybody grieves in the same way and it's, you know, it's going to happen one, two, three, four, five. I can't speak for Catherine. My experience of grief has been very different than I thought. I've hardly cried, for instance. I mean, if you think of the Victorian heroine or even my mother who lost both my father and her son within two years and sort of did very ceremonial things like not getting dressed for several weeks because grief somehow involved being in your 90, not being in, you know, putting your clothes on and going to work as it were. And I found that I really wasn't that person at all, that my grief is very internal. I cried very little, even when I was doing the audio book, which Catherine found much harder to do than I. I was very rarely moved to burst out crying as I read those letters. What I did instead was I kept thinking I need to update him, which is why I started writing them again. So I'd be reading this letter and saying, oh, but I need to update you on that. A lot has happened since I wrote that letter. But it in no way means I didn't love him. I adored him. He's left a huge hole in my life. But also I'm coping 100% better than I thought it would. That's all I can say. I think I'm far less surprised by the way that, that you are grieving than in some ways the way I am. I mean, I would have I would have and did predict that the thing that would frighten you most would be the, the practicalities that you would think you couldn't cope. And I also knew that you would be able to. But because you lost your father and brother at such a young age and then your, and then your stepfather as well, you know, your whole life is one marked by loss. And I knew you to be somebody who's instinctively stoic and doesn't sort of show those things externally. So the fact that when we were reading the audio book that I cried and you didn't is, is not, not a remote surprise to me and I lost a lot of people close to me before Andy and Uh, John yes well including John that's what I'm saying is I had lost a lot of people close to me before Andy very close to me most recently John but also in fact just a, a few days after Andy my my journalistic mentor died and one of my very best friends died in 2016, a month apart from my other stepsister, Sarah. And Morris, who was a very close family friend, died just after that. And, you know, there there has been a huge amount of loss. So you sort of think, you know, grief. But when Andy died, the profundity of the loss, which is still something that I'm coming to terms with, There is a difference, I think, when you lose somebody who is that much part of your life, that much interwoven into your life, because you're not just losing that person. You're losing everything you thought about your future. And that, of course, happened at a time of enormous uncertainty for everyone because of the pandemic. And so it it was such an odd, an odd experience and it's still one it's still one that i'm grappling with but grief is grief is such a shapeshifter most of the time although i cried during the audiobook and i sometimes am tearful i think i am more similar to my mother than different from her in the sense that i don't tend to do a lot of public grieving on the other hand i've been much more public about what i feel and think because i felt there was a 
an actual positive value to it, particularly in the current circumstances. And it's been that's been very odd for me because for years and years with Andy, because of the public interest in him, that public dimension, I'd been fiercely private about my private life. There were lots and lots of people when he died who kind of went, oh my God, that was your husband. And they'd even met him and they hadn't realised who he was because I would have never said anything. Whereas everybody in the world knew John was my husband because we, yeah. we were absolutely very close in every in all of our lives. I mentioned being an arts publicist. Um, when I said 43 years, we lived together for three years and then were married for 40. He never missed a performance I publicized. I'm talking numbers that you could hardly calculate. I mean, I ran press, for instance, for 10 years at the Royal Court, opened at least 350 plays in that time, possibly more, including very, you know, theater upstairs, things that lasted an hour. He never missed a single one of them. And when he was almost dead, literally a couple of weeks from death, I'd worked on a huge performance of Murder in the Cathedral at Southern Cathedral. And the whole family came to the press night, the whole extended family, because my grandson was in it. So my first husband also came. We were all, and John was by this time in a wheelchair. And I just looked, I could see his face. He was absolutely wrapped. He was so loving it. It was a, a beautiful performance. And that was, you know, well, certainly weeks before he died and days before he went into the hospital for the final time. So everybody knew he was my husband. And at the Royal Court, where nobody's partners ever showed their faces, it was rather unique. So when I had my leaving party, of course, he had to come too because he'd been there so much. I'm, I'm not, by the way, suggesting that our friends didn't know Andy was my husband. No. <laughs> What I meant was, you know, I've talked publicly about Andy. I've posted, I've posted private photographs. I have, I have talked about stuff that was the stuff of our private lives, which is stuff that would have normally been been kept to, to friendship group, you know, to close friendship groups and whatever. I wouldn't have put on social media. And so, as I say again, that's a sort of for me. This is part of a. This is related to the grieving process, and it's something that surprised me, my impulse to do that, because it was such a change from what went before. But it's also grief. There's a way in which you feel it some days for what it is as love, and then there are other days where you are assailed by that kind of emptiness of the stolen future there's a lot of kind of cycling through feelings and that idea of the stages of grief kind of it's far too neat it imagines a progression where you you go through one phase and then you're through that oh I'm I don't think either my mother or I have been angry at all which is supposedly one of the phases of grief unless you count shouting at imprecations at our incompetent politicians as part of that anger but um you know, it's much more rapid cycling. It can change within an hour, certainly within a day. And it doesn't, It that stages of grief idea also implies that it's something that ends neatly. And most people I know who have suffered a profound loss will tell you that it's something that never ends, but that it that's not as miserable as it sounds. And again, this is 
why I'm kind of quite keen to talk about that with people is it's the wrong ambition to sort of work through grief to get rid of grief what you do with grief is you embrace it and make it part of your life and then you can be happy and sad not only in quick succession but at the same time yeah yeah it's a book that's also got a sort of an aspect of it that's saying this is what needs to change to make this this better can you say kind of quite quickly we haven't got that much time left but what you feel i mean you talk about the expectations and stereotypes of widowhood you talk about the difficulties the practical difficulties yeah. sad men and also about you know the terrible awkwardness of friends who do that kind yeah. of how are you or you know yeah. well you can look you the got future. the tone just right there <laughs> side head i think deborah or called it but what you know what do you think fundamentally needs to change to make it easier to grieve you know, publicly in terms of policy and privately in terms of how friends should react? I don't think grieving will ever be easier, but I think that what will help is, first of all, people's expectations. So for instance, particularly widows, female widows, stemming from cultures like India, where you throw yourself on the pyre because there's absolutely no reason. I think people have to realize that there's this incredible duality that you've lost someone that you'll never stop grieving for, but you're still here. And in Catherine's case, you know, I'm elderly, but I'm still very much here. But Catherine has, you know, half her life to live. So that there's the part of you that's lost. And there's the part of you that's still blooming here and is still a person and still wants to do things and go places and and of course, pandemic has made that all weird because neither Catherine nor I know what we would have done if there hadn't been a pandemic, whether we would have been back going to dinner parties and things. You know, in a weird way, it simplified things because there was no choice to be made. You know, do I really feel like going to a New Year's Eve party, for instance? Well, because I usually do go to one. That didn't need to be made because there wasn't a New Year's Eve party. So I think it's just this thing that the duality of loss and and then still being here and not having any desire to turn your face to the wall and say well he's not here so i'm not here either and i think people we just have to increase that understanding and i think it's stronger with women because a there are a lot more widows than there are widowers and b i think people just expect women in some way to be like a plant that's had its roots pulled out I think, I mean, to pick up on that, the one of the things I felt about people's awkwardness around death and the bereaved was that although some of the, the you know, people said hilariously clumsy things to us all the time, and a lot of those I found very funny, but the only thing that really hurt was the people who, rather than engaging with us, disappeared. And that's something people do out of awkwardness. So for me, I think that the message for people dealing with the bereaved is it's better to do something wrong than do nothing at all. You know, some form of engagement. Don't don't be scared about it. But that then leads into a sense that if we did talk more openly about mortality, we would also find all of this less awkward. So I don't think that we do ourselves any favours in shying away from the absolute certainty of mortality and, and sort of embedding that much more into our discussions instead of like having this 
this sort of fear and this like the things that get said in hushed tones or don't get said at all. And then for me, the the most obvious kind of there are things I mean, you mentioned predation and we didn't really get onto that. But there are things that are practical to know about the fact that you are, as somebody recently bereaved, you are much more likely to be vulnerable to fraud and scams because quite apart from anything else, there's an awful lot of personal information that for various reasons is pumped out when somebody dies. And that is a, is a honeypot for fraudsters and, and scam artists. But there's a much bigger point, which is around the ways which came out very clearly in the pandemic. And it's around the ways in which some lives are valued more than others. And that has played out in terms of the ways in which people responded, the policy responses to pandemic, but it also plays out in weird ways of people saying things about, for example, older people like, you know, well, he had a good innings or he wouldn't have wanted to live that way. It's like, no, you know, to use the phrase that is so often abused, all lives matter. And that means that all deaths matter too. And if you have that kind of understanding that at every every single death is a loss and it will have this ripple effect of all the people around it who are affected by it. And we are much too easily losing that, but we we were already living in a in a world that thought that some people were much more important than others and had much more of a, an entitlement to life. And so that's I think these are all things that we can address and we've tried to talk about in in the book but in the context of a celebration of life and and these fantastic funny men that we were so lucky to love well said thank you well that seems a good place to end Anne mayer bird Catherine mayer thank you both very much indeed for your time wonderful book good grief embracing life in a time of death is out now Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening. And please join us for our next episode.